if you can hear me, let's get into our study tonight. And again, if we get cut off, just come back in on the same link. Uh, but the title of uh, what I'm going to share tonight is called Reasonable Service. Reasonable Service from Matthew 21 and Romans 12. Uh, this happens once in a while. Did you discuss the Revelation tonight? No, no. I mentioned that before. We're taking a break from Revelation tonight. Okay. I didn't see, I didn't that message. Yeah. I, I apologize, but I'm kind of, <laughs> uh, I've thrown it on you. I know you're expecting Revelation, but we're doing something a little bit different tonight. And uh, this happens once in a while. Uh, something ends up being heavy on my heart for some time. Uh, I end up thinking about it. The Lord leads me through it, and He's still leading me through it. And, uh, you know, maybe selfishly, I have to share it, but I can't not. I couldn't gloss over it. And at the same time with it being Palm Sunday, I know we probably, most of us went to church or I've been listening to messages and they're Easter related. We went to church this morning and it wasn't Easter related. Uh, the pastor was finishing up Romans. Uh, but I couldn't see going past Palm Sunday and I couldn't see going past what's been heavy on my heart and sharing those things. And I think the Lord has hopefully crafted it into something that really works together. Uh, and I think even then, in the, the larger scale of our Revelation study, I think having Revelation in mind, what we've been studying about Jesus, about the end times, about Him being revealed for who He really is, I think all these things go together, uh, and hopefully uh, the Lord will get it to go together in a way that makes sense and ministers to each of us. Uh, because I'm not that good of a spiritual cook, but the Lord is uh, a master chef in those things. So it's Matthew White again, I'm sorry. It's okay. It's Matthew 21 and Romans 12. Matthew 21 and Romans 12. Uh, my Aunt Mary Jane, who I think was on the call for a second before, she emailed me this week about something the Lord administered to her about. I won't share it here, uh, but it really only added to what was already stewing in my heart uh, and in my mind uh, and in my soul over this time. And it was really encouraging to hear it. I don't know that she meant it to be encouraging, but it was really encouraging to hear it uh, come from her. Um, and like I said, don't forget about Revelation as we look at this, uh, because I think like we talked about a few weeks ago, or I don't know what week it was, but that Revelation really gives us the lens uh, from which to look through everything in life. Revelation is the last book of the Bible. It reveals a lot of the things that the scripture was alluding to. It reveals them plainly, despite what some may think about Revelation. It reveals them plainly, uh, and it reveals the future plainly. And I think if we're going to understand even uh, world events. We need to see it through Revelation. But I think also it should give us the right perspective on our lives um, uh, and how we are to live them and go through them. Uh, but just because things are happening so fast and it's always so fun to share headlines, I'm going to share a few headlines from this week that I emailed myself to make sure to share because they not only go with what we're talking about in Revelation, but they are really signs of our times. And I'll have the notes up on the website tomorrow at some time if you want to get the actual links for them or I can just email you if you ask for them. Uh, but here's the first one. It says, Pakistan, Christians relegated to manually cleaning sewers. That Christians are being forced to clean sewers without any protective gear, without anything else. And you can read the article for yourself. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but think about that. Think about that. Being forced to clean a sewer because you're a Christian. A new Chinese law bans the word Christ on social media, says it causes incitement. It causes incitement. And remember, 
that there's a state church in China, but despite of this, they're still moving forward and encroaching more and more on their uh, whatever's left of their uh, minuscule freedom. When you think of uh, environmental, social, and corporate governance, or ESG, when you think ESG, you should be thinking CCP, says Peter Thiel, a large tech uh, mogul. And look into that one. If you don't know what ESG is, I encourage you to Google it and uh, see just how the world governance is coming together, just like we're reading about in Revolution. Uh, the next one, airport robot watches human faces and narks on anyone without a mask. And the sub-headline sub says, new security robots will stare at travelers' faces and report any potential crimes or mass clippages that happen on their watch. This next one, this next one's not from China, but it certainly sounds like it from the last one. It says, school orders teen to remove pray for peace shirts. And the last one, it says, are we witnessing the beginning of de-dollarization? Really, uh, and I don't remember if it directly speaks to this, but if you look the things around there happening around the world, the world is purposely removing foundations from everything. And I think one of the foundations they're preparing to move purposely is uh, the U.S. dollar uh, from global currency. If you look around and see what's the sanctions on Russia have basically backfired. It's really only strengthening their ties to China and uh, an alternate petrodollar. Uh, but that's really for another time. So, Lord, uh, as we get into, God, your word and uh, history and the future and, God, what you might say to us, God, would you, by your spirit and through your word, speak to us and encourage us. And despite all these things going on in the world, God, would you end them? We know you will one day when you come back. But, God, use us to be salt and light. But, God, minister to us. Help us to hear what you have for each of us and be able to walk and live it out, uh, especially in light of these days that we're living in that God, the many prophets and Christians of old look forward to. God, we get to, in a sense, see it uh, come to light before our eyes. Uh, we love you, God, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's look at Matthew chapter 21, and we'll look at the f first 11 verses uh, together. Uh, here we are. So Matthew chapter 21, the first 11 verses. Again, I'm reading from the modern English version, which will be uh, a little bit different than maybe what you have. It's based on the King James but just a little more modern. Uh, but I think you should be able to follow along just fine. And if not, you can upgrade. <laughs> just kidding. I just, I've been using this translation lately, and it's really uh, been a blessing. Uh, minister to me. So Matthew 21, the first 11 verses, and it says, <clears throat> excuse me, it says, When they drew near to Jerusalem, disciples and Jesus, and came to Bethpage on the Mountain of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go over to the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and he will send them immediately. And this was done to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Look, your king is coming to you, humble and sitting on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and colt and laid their garments on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their garments on the road. Others cut down the branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went before him and that followed him cried out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the entire city was moved, saying, Who is he? 
And the crowd said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Uh, so we know we probably heard this story and read this story many times, especially if you've been around church around Easter. Some people, there used to be a joke, with, they were the C&Ers, the Christmas and Easter visitors right at church. So even if you've only visited church in your life, you've probably heard this story uh, before. Uh, but basically, Jesus is getting ready. It's a week before his crucifixion, and he's getting ready to come into the city and really fulfill this scripture showing who he is. He's revealing who he is. He's kind of been holding back a little bit from time to time. He'd reveal a little bit of himself, uh, but he's revealing that he is a king, and he's the king entering uh, Jerusalem and Israel and the world, and he's going to come in riding on this donkey. But he says, uh, go into that town over there. Go to the next town over and look for a donkey, and it's uh, full. And when you find them, bring them back to me, because we need them. We're going to use them for what we're going to do today. Uh, and I don't know if I've ever even heard this said, but that basically the disciples are going, for lack of a better term, they're almost going to steal these two donkeys. If Jesus hadn't asked them to do it, right, you would think, you know, if, if I told you to go to the town next door and go get that Honda Civic, it's not your Civic you'd be stealing it. But the Lord owns a cattle on a thousand hills, so technically everything's Jesus. Jesus would never tell them to break the commandments, so they're not stealing here. But he says, immediately go over here and get this donkey. And I believe Jesus knew that there was someone over there. Of course he knew he's God, right? But he knew that there was someone over there with a donkey, with animals tied up. I believe he knew that this person loved God, and maybe even had it on his heart to leave them out. You know, maybe, you know, sometimes you just get that weird feeling to do something and it ends up being the Lord, right? Maybe he left him tied out that day. And he's like, you know what, I'll, I'll bring him in the barn later. I don't know. But I have a feeling that this person, if God asked them to do something, doesn't say whose they are, right? It's man or a woman. If this person was asked to do something, to give something, that they were ready and willing to do it at the drop of a hat. If God said, hey, I need your donkey, Okay, Lord, have my donkey. If God said, hey, I need to use your house for the Last Supper, or I need you to help me do this, or come help these people move at church, um, that this person would be ready and willing to do it. and wouldn't have a problem with it. Imagine those are your donkeys, right? I know you guys on the East Coast don't even know what a donkey looks like, maybe. But, <laughs> just kidding. Uh, but sincerely, you know, if you had an animal outside, or you had something outside, and a bunch of guys just walked up and started untying it. You'd probably be on the phone, calling the cops, saying, get off my lawn, right? <laughs> but if this person asked, Jesus said, hey, tell them the Lord has need of it. So imagine you go outside and there's your donkeys being taken, a bunch of raggedy looking guys taking your donkeys. And they say, hey, what are you doing with my donkeys? And they say, the Lord has need of it. Well, his attitude probably changed right away. Say, hey, go ahead, take them. I don't even want them back. If the Lord needs it, you do whatever you need to do with them. I want to be in service of the Lord. If the Lord needs my donkeys, then they're your donkeys. My donkey, that's your donkey, right? So they take that. And this reminds me of, in a little way, of Ananias in Acts 9. If you remember, Paul gets saved, right? And God says to Ananias, hey, Ananias, you know that guy Saul that has been killing Christians and arresting them? Well, he's mine now. And I want you to go talk to him. I want you to go pray for him. And Ananias goes, Lord, uh, He's that murderer guy, and, and eventually, you know, the Lord convinces Ananias to do it. And Ananias goes over and does it immediately and prays for uh, Paul, and the things come off his eyes, and Paul sets out uh, in preparation for ministry, right? But he was willing to go out and do this thing, 
And the minister knows. Ananias is going about his day, praying, hanging out. All of a sudden, God speaks to him and says, go do this thing. Go to the specific street. I've prayed about a lot of things in life. I've gotten some semi-specific direction in life from the Lord. But I don't know if the Lord's ever said, hey, go down to 854 or 27 Barbary Street, right? And gotten a specific address and go pray for some murderer. Never had that happen, thankfully. I don't think I'd go immediately. But Ananias was willing to go immediately. But back in uh, Matthew, uh, Jesus says that he will send them immediately. He knows that this man is the person is not going to hold back from, from God. When God calls, immediately this person is going to answer with their, what they have. This word immediately, I read through Mark recently too at, at night in my own time. And uh, the word immediately just kept popping up immediately, 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 immediately. I'm like, uh, I, I know this was Peter, you know, maybe, uh, you know, and Mark writing, you know, I don't really know how that worked out. Uh, maybe they didn't have a large vocabulary and that's okay. Uh, who does? But they kept saying immediately. And I know that the Lord put that in, in for a purpose. And when the Lord says immediately, I believe he means it. Uh, he says immediately. And that word, uh, eutheos in the Greek, can you guess what it means? Immediately. <laughs> There's no like nuance. There's no interpretation. It immediately means immediately. No delay. No delay. And I'm reminded of the two sons uh, that were told to go do something by their father. And the one says, sure, I'll go do it but he doesn't go do it. And Jesus was using this as an illustration. And the other says, no way. And later on, he goes uh, and regrets it and goes and does it. And Jesus asked which of the son was obedient. And they all said, obviously, the second one, the one who went and did it, right? He didn't do it immediately, but he still went and did it. And he was the obedient one, right? And how many, how many people say, yes, I'll do something for the Lord. I'll do it right away. But they never end up doing it. And there's many who out there who kind of hold back and aren't sure but then they realize you know what they can't escape the call and they still end up going out and doing it and for time i won't read all of it but in james chapter 4 uh verse 17 he says remember james was the half-brother of jesus james didn't immediately believe it wasn't until after the resurrection that his uh that the disciples and some of jesus family came to him remember they said they all basically thought jesus was crazy at one point in his life but James, who's definitely had a change of heart, says, Therefore, to him who knows to do the good and does not do it, to him it is sin. That's one thing not to know the right thing to do and to not do it. But it's a whole other thing to know the right thing to do and to not do it. So often we're concerned about the wrong thing and not doing the wrong thing. And if we just don't do the wrong things, then we're not sinning. But as we grow in the Lord, we should realize that there's a lot of right things we should be doing. And if we know the right things to be doing, well, and we're not doing them, well, that's just equally amount of sin as it would be to be specifically breaking a commandment, right? But we see here that it says, your king is coming. He's humble. He's on a donkey. That as Jesus goes in, right, he's God. He made everything. He knows everything. He doesn't come in with pomp and circumstance, right? They, the people give him pomp and circumstance, but he comes in humble. And we've probably heard it all before that the donkey is uh, not an animal of war, right? You're not going to ride that Honda Civic into war. You're going to go get a tank, right? And Jesus comes in on that Honda Civic, on that donkey, on that symbol of peace. Um, and that was his act, his fulfilling that scripture. And if we remember in Revelation, one of the riders who claims to be peaceful comes in on a horse, right? He's got all the crowns, he's got his bow, and he claims to uh, be powerful. And the people worship him as a false messiah, as a king. Coming in, their king coming in, they usher him in. We've been waiting for the false Christ to come, and they, and they worship him as we've been seeing in Revelation. But that's just Satan's 
cheap copy of Jesus, and it's, it's never as good, and it's never close, and it's never accurate. But we see a large crowd surrounds Jesus as in front and back. All these people show up. Um, they start throwing their garments on the road. How chivalrous, right? Like that was the thing, right? If there was a puddle in the old days, you threw your coat down for your date so that she wouldn't have to step in the puddle. Um, I don't know. Sorry, I don't know that I've ever done that. I've held the door though, right? <laughs> held the door, started her car. Um, uh, you know, all those things, right? But they, they do this to show how important this person is supposed to be to them. They, they, they have this outward sign, this outward cry that we'll look at in a minute. They cut down branches. They say, hey, this is the king. And they begin to, in a sense, worship him as king. Not necessarily worship him as God, but they begin to proclaim that this is the king we've been waiting for. Um, and they cry out, Hosanna. When uh, Mia was little, she called it Hosanna Day. And I like calling Palm Sunday Hosanna Day way better than Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday, I don't know, it's just, it might be a good day in Florida, right, Mom? <laughs> but, uh, you know, Palm Branch Sunday. But it's Hosanna Day. And Hosanna is just an exclamation of adoration. It means, oh, save. Like, Hosanna, save us. Yes, fantastic. We love you. We adore you. Um, but uh, the crowd loves him here. That They're waiting for the Messiah to save them from the tyranny of Rome. But Jesus, as we know, wasn't come to, coming to save them from the tyranny of Rome. Jesus was coming to save them from the tyranny of sin. And yes, he would save them from Rome eventually, right? The Roman Empire fell. That when they have power in the Lord as believers, they no longer have to be oppressed under Rome. Yeah, their lives might be spent uh, in chains as Paul went to Rome, but spiritually they were free from it, that they didn't need to live for this kingdom anymore. But again, he was coming to save them from the spiritual tyranny. And I wonder, are we just waiting for him to save us from the tyranny of this life? Do we just want God to get us out of a situation we're in? Do we just want God to put more money in our bank account or save us from a bad boss or get us out of an illness that we're in? And not that asking God or requesting God for any of these things is wrong. It's not, right? God wants us to pray about everything to Him. God wants us to seek Him for everything. God wants to be the answers uh, for all those issues in our life. But uh, is that the final thing we're looking for? Is that the deepest thing that we expect Him to come to our call for, right? Is that all He's a king of in our life? Or is there something greater that He's a king of in our lives? And as I preach this, please don't think that I'm coming to you from a point where I feel that I've attained. I haven't. This is something the Lord's been ministering to me to and, and, and desiring more of. We're in this together, all as believers. But have we realized that this life is not the one we're living for? That in a sense, although God has saved us, right? And God desires a better life for us in this life. But that this is not the life God has saved us for. The life that God has saved us for is eternal life, right? We're going to have a life that's more abundant than Jesus says. But the goal of Jesus' death on the cross, the goal of Jesus coming in as king uh, this week before the crucifixion, was not that we could have a better life now or a best life now. Although, I submit to you, this is my best life now. This life I have now is far better than the life I had before Jesus. But if this is all he saved me for, well, man, I think he paid a little bit too much then just uh, you know, give me a little bit of a vacation in Montana. Let me work from home. All these blessings that he's bestowed on me. I, it's worth a lot more than that. Again, Jesus is a king. I, I think we all believe that. I know we all believe that. There's no doubt about it. But he's king of heaven. And here he's showing he's king of heaven and earth. That spiritually he's coming in and announcing that he is king in the way that only Jesus would do it, right? But when he comes back, 
as we've been reading Revelation, as we'll get to eventually in Revelation, he's not coming back in a peaceful way. He's coming back with a sword to rightfully take over this kingdom that's been usurped from him. But overall, Jesus is a spiritual king. His spiritual kingdom precedes the earthly one. It's a greater one. It includes the earthly kingdom, as we'll see. The millennial reign is one that he rules over earth and proves to everybody, hey, look, you guys thought you could do government? This is how I really intend to do government, and it's a lot better than what you had planned. And again, for time, I won't go through the whole thing, but in 1 Timothy chapter 6, uh, towards the end of it, uh, 14 through 16, uh, Paul urges, he says, I urge you in the sight of God, who gives life to all things, and before Christ Jesus, who witnessed a good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing, which we see in Revelation, which he will manifest in his own time, he who is the blessed and only potentate, that fancy word for ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. That I love that part about him dwelling in unapproachable light, that Jesus is a king, right? He's not just an earthly king, but he's the king of all kings. He is in charge of every king on earth, and we'll see that in Revelation. It doesn't look like it a week from now, uh, but even when uh, uh, Pontius Pilate tells him, hey, look, I can set you free, and Jesus says, you only have the power that's been given to you, right? But that he's the king of kings, and he has everlasting power. And I think we forget, lest we look in Revelation, how powerful Jesus is. When we look at Revelation, we realize, okay, he's more powerful than a nuclear explosion. He's more powerful than the fusion reaction in the sun. He's created the whole universe. We cannot dwell in his presence. If God didn't preserve us, there's no man who could stand before his presence. And yet Jesus somehow says to us, if we've seen him, we've seen the Father. That in some sort of veiled attempt at protecting us, he lets us see him in his grace and his mercy in Jesus. And as we end our little time here in Matthew, it says that the entire city was moved. The whole city was in uproar. I was watching uh, Formula One in Australia before. It was a taped race, and I have to watch it afterwards because I wasn't going to watch it in the middle of the night for the time difference. But the attendance was something around 500,000 people. That the whole city of Brisbane, I know it's not 500,000 people, but a lot of people from Australia came to see this Formula One race. Filled up the crowd, paid their money, get to watch the race and everything. And the same thing when Jesus came to town. Everybody came out. This was the biggest event. Jesus is here. Jesus is here. People are like, who is he? Who are, who's this guy that they're throwing the, the clothes down, the palm branches down? What's he about? What's his name? I haven't seen him before. And some others, as we'll see, say, uh, say who he is or who they believe he to be to them. You know, they realize that he's a prophet, but none of them here, at least written in scripture, says, there's the king of kings. There's the promised Messiah. There's the Jesus who made the earth. They say, Oh, that's Jesus from Nazareth. He's a prophet, right? They're not wrong. He was from Nazareth. He was a prophet. He is the prophet of all prophets. But they missed the point. They only saw his earthly heritage. They only saw his earthly location. They didn't see him for who he really was completely revealed. And I think evidence of that is a week later, as I'm sure we've heard over and over in Palm Sunday messages, a week later, what is probably most of this crowd still shout? Crucify him. This week, Hosanna, seven days later, crucify him. Praise you, our Savior. We're so glad you're here. Get rid of him, kill him. We'd rather Barabbas be released. 
And as you've probably heard it a million times, how fickle the crowd is. And, you know, I could care less, but I think just look at Will Smith. Everyone loved Will Smith up until a week or two ago and whatever happened happened. And I love how Hollywood's so up in arms about a slap at a party. And yet like Harvey Weinstein wasn't an issue for all these years. And, and the stuff that they put in movies isn't a big deal, but how dare you slap a comedian for making a joke and not saying that it's right or wrong, but look at how fickle the crowd is, right? And really, again, for time, I encourage you in this next week before Easter, before uh, the crucifixion, uh, before uh, Resurrection Sunday, take a look at in Matthew and in the other Gospels, what does Jesus do between the time he comes into the city and the time he leaves the city? It's very interesting, the things that he points out, the things that he does, and the things that the other people try and do. One of the things is that he questions authority. Another thing is the flipping of the tables. And there's plenty of other things. So the king comes in, and what does he begin to do? He begins the spiritually clean house in preparation for uh, his real act of worship and his real act of service for God. And with that, let's look at Romans chapter 12, uh, the first two verses there together. Romans 12, a little bit to the right. Oh, we got 10 minutes. All right, so in a couple in a couple minutes, we will uh, have to bounce off and come back in again. <laughs> so I will definitely make this work better next time around. But if you're in Romans 12, turn to Romans 12. It says, and I know that, you know, all of us have probably been around the Bible for a while, church for a while. You've probably heard this before. You've probably read it before. You might even, you know, I don't know. I don't know if they make t-shirts for this. I, I don't think they do because this isn't as, as fun as some of the Christian t-shirts out there. But it says, as Paul says to those in Rome, right? He says, I urge you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And it just came to me, and I'll say it here out of line just so I don't forget it, but think of what happened to the Christians in Rome over the next couple hundred years before uh, the emperor, quote-unquote, became a Christian and converted Roman, you know, Rome to the church. Think about all the Christians that went before gladiators or went before uh, lions or faced state persecution, right? And they would have this scripture to think about, presenting their bodies as a living sacrifice, right? To be burned at the stake, to be skewered in front of cheering audiences, right? Think about them for a minute in Rome having this. But Paul says, I urge you, therefore, I urge you, therefore, and well, as it's been taught to me, if anytime you see therefore, ask yourself, what is it therefore? And so I'm just going to touch on a little bit of chapter 11 and verse 29 says, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable for just as you were once disobedient to God and now have received mercy through their disobedience. So these also have now been disobedient that they also may receive mercy by the mercy shown to you. Um, and he goes on and says, For the, Oh, the depth of riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How searchable are his judgments and unfathomable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him as it shall be repaid to him? 
For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen, Paul says. And from that, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Right? That Paul urges them. He urges them uh, that the gifts and calling are, are irrevocable. Uh, that they need to lay their lives down. And I hope that this time together, these bits of God's word will be an urging for us uh, today. Uh, maybe even this week, if you'd remember it, but potentially for the rest of our lives, that we remember these scriptures, God, uh, and not necessarily what I've said, but what God says in his word. Um, this word urge is parakleo. We know the Holy Spirit is a form of, uh, written in the New Testament is a form of that word, the paraclete, and it means one who comes alongside and encourages us. And Paul says he's urging them. He's coming alongside them. He's, he's summoning them. He's admonishing them. He's encouraging them. He wants to instruct them, to teach them. I urge you, Therefore, brethren, right? Urging. There's, there's a sense of importance here that we can't miss. Um, that we serve a king. We serve the king. And I know Mia will like this example. And I apologize if you haven't seen Lord of the Rings or read Lord of the Rings. But in it, uh, there's two little hobbits and they're friends, right? And they go and one pledges his fealty to uh, a steward of a kingdom. Uh, the steward, the wicked steward of Gondor, the king has been absent, and the third movie is about the return of that king and who this king is. And, uh, you know, Tolkien uh, was not necessarily a Christian by any stretch of the means, and it's not an allegory, but I like the picture here. I think it fits. Because one serves a good king of Rohan. He says, it's a time of war. I realize what I need to do, uh, and I know I'm not much, but I have a little sword, and I want to pledge my fealty to you and the king of Rohan gives him a new name and is very happy for him and you know honored that he would serve their kingdom that way the other king's a wicked steward he's not even a real king he's just sitting on the you know the steward's throne lower and uh he just he's a bad king and this guy gets himself in a bad place he never should open his mouth and pledge his fealty to that but i bring that up because i think sometimes we forget that god is king that god is king and we serve him he's our father right? The Holy Spirit is our comforter. Jesus is our friend even. You know, we're not even his servants, we're his friends. But I think we forget that service aspect to him, that he's a king and he's a holy king. And there's things in here that we need to do to serve that holy king um, if we really realize him as our king. And Paul says to give your body as a living sacrifice. How many people will go out and light themselves on fire for their false god to try and bring uh, attention on the world stage to things that go on. Uh, how many people beat themselves and try and get the attention of their God? If we remember Elijah in the scripture and the prophets of Baal, what do they do? They dance around all day. They cut themselves. They screamed and yelled. And Elijah goes, scream a little louder, guys. Maybe he's on the toilet and he can't hear you. That's really what he says. And I love that God, like mom talked about the mock, God sits and laughs and mocks. And he was saying, come on, guys, you're being... Uh, unreasonable in what you're doing to try and get somebody's attention. That doesn't exist in the first place, but we serve a God who exists. A living sacrifice that our lives every day should be lived as a sacrifice to God. And I have to say, I don't know how much I actually sacrifice every day. What are we truly actually sacrificing to Him every day? And not that God requires a sacrifice. Jesus is our sacrifice. But is our life lived as a sacrifice, when it comes down to what we want and what he wants, right? What wins out? Are we praying for what he wants? Or are we praying for what we want? And again, God says to ask, you have not because you ask not, right? But on the same side, 
what are we asking for? Are we asking amiss like James talks about? And when God gives us those answers that we don't like, I wish I could share a song with you guys. I'll have to email it. Um, but man, when God gives us an answer that's no, or God lets us go through something that's hard, like it says in Job, um, will we not accept the evil and the good from God as our king? And let me pause there. I apologize to kick you out a second time, but close out of the call completely, and we'll come back in and we'll wrap up here. Again, I apologize. Thank you for bearing with Let's, uh, let's get back into it. Thanks for uh, hopping off and back on. But uh, to give uh, our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, right? What does Jesus say about some of the, uh, at the end? They'll say, Lord, didn't we do all these things in your name, even cast out demons? That one blows my mind. But there's people out there who throughout history, maybe even now, are casting out demons, literally casting them out. Jesus doesn't say, you never cast out a demon. He doesn't refute what they say. And they come before him and he says to them, depart from me. You wicked servant, I never knew you. I never knew you. And they go into outer darkness, right? That's kind of scary to think about. But it needs to be acceptable to God. That our service to God needs to be acceptable to Him, right? And it's acceptable to Him when it's in Jesus. Our fleshly efforts will never make God happy. Our beating ourselves to death, our condemning ourselves, are trying to be the best person in our own flesh outside of the scripture, outside of the Holy Spirit. We'll never make God happy. Trying to make ourselves like the image of anyone else other than his son will never make God happy. In the end, really, God is only finds us acceptable because of his blood in our lives, because of a week later what he does at the cross, right? That even Isaiah says, my, my good works are his filthy rags. My righteousness is his filthy rags. That He recognizes that anything I do is worthless. Then when we get to heaven, we what? We cast our crowns back to the king. We're going to say, we're not king. We didn't have any charge of this. You, you asked us to do it. It was just what you wanted, God. We only were unprofitable servants. You told us to do this, and we didn't make you any profit. We only did what you asked of us, right? But it's our reasonable service of worship. And that word reasonable is reasonable. It means pertaining to reason or logic. It makes absolute sense to serve God, to serve the absolute king, Right? When we really know who he is, when we know him, there's only one right response. And that's service. That's love. That's adoration. That's laying our lives down. Jesus says the one who forgives much has been forgiven much. Right, That if we know him for who he is, if we've really seen him, there's only one thing we can do. Like the apostles. We can all, we've only talked about what we've seen and experienced and know. Right, We can't stop preaching in Jesus' name because it's true. How could we deny it, they say. Isaiah 1, 18 through 20, you know this, says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, that shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you should be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That as we serve God, this good king, it makes sense. And in fact, God is the one who comes to us and reasons to us. That's why Easter is so important and churches like to have people invited to them on Easter because it's such a perfect opportunity to get in people's minds about who Jesus is. That Jesus reasons, says, hey, look, your sins are scarlet, but I want to make them white as snow. Your life's a total mess, but I want to clean it up and fix it. Your life, even if it's great, I've got a life that's far better for you and is eternal. And more than that, I love you like no one else loves you. 
So God says, I want to give you a reasonable argument, right? And no matter where you and I have been, no matter where you and I uh, feel we are today, guess what? Your gifts and calling are irrevocable, right? Now, you may never be Billy Graham. There may be consequences in life that prevent us from going as far as God had wanted us to in life. But you know what? Your gifts and calling are irrevocable. That God has called and gifted each one of you, despite what you think, despite what others have said, despite how you feel, He has gifted you. That the King of heaven and earth has given you gifts and has called each one of us. He has called each one of us, right? And He hasn't called each one of us just to, just to pass out flyers at church. That's a fantastic thing, right? And that's probably part of it. He's called each one of us not just to share the gospel, but to follow Him until the ends of the earth. To make disciples of all nations, to lay down our lives and count it all as loss, to follow Him, to go after our King, and to not live for this life, but to live for the next one. And in that, to know Him better, to know Him in His sufferings. Because Jesus, in Philippians, as we know, right, did something very unreasonable. He counted Himself, as we've read it before in Revelation, He counted Himself not equal to be with God, to suffer the obedience even unto death. That Jesus was obedient to death, to the cross. Now, I don't think that that's reasonable. I think the more we think about the things that God does for us, it's the most unreasonable thing you could ever think about. The most holy, the most loving, the most powerful, the most wonderful being in all of history, the one who is history, the one who is I am, knows the end from the beginning, beginning from the end, died for us, sent his son for us. Puts up with us day in and day out. Says, although you've fallen this many times, the righteous man gets back up and keeps going, right? He says, I have gifts for you. I have crowns for you. He says, your calling's irrevocable, right? At our jobs, our calling's not irrevocable. We mess up one too many times and they'll get somebody else to do our job for us, right? Joanne goes off the road one time in that bus and that's probably the only time she'll ever be allowed <laughs> to go off the road. Uh, they won't want her driving kids around anymore. That's why I don't drive a bus, because I'd probably be trying to do a burnout with the kids in the back. And yeah. I would yeah, I would see, I wouldn't last very long. But Jesus is is if if you can hang on to this, Jesus is the most reasonable, the most logical uh, being there is, even in doing what we perceive to be the most unreasonable thing. His act of love, his act of service to the Father is the most reasonable thing. Because if God is who he says he is, and I don't mean to put God in a corner. But there's nothing else he could have done. He's a loving God. He is love. There's nothing else he would have ever done for us but to lay down his life for us and die for us. And in the light of that, if we admit to who we really are, admit to what we're really like on the inside, what we really think about, what we really do, how we really act a second apart from his presence, and sometimes even in his presence, as Paul would say that I'm the least of all the saints, right? What is our reasonable service to him? Has what we've done in our lives ever added up to a reasonable amount of repayment to him? And not that we could ever repay him. Not that he's looking for that money back, right? It's a free gift. But if we really love him and really, really know everything that he's done for us, as we say we do, especially, you know, if we've been around Bible teaching for a long time. Like Paul says in Romans uh, 12 two, Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Do our lives prove that his will is perfect and good and is acceptable? Have we progressed? And I don't mean this as a guilt or anything like that, 
but I mean it as an urging. I think the Lord means it as an urging for all of us. Keep going. Go further. Time is not up yet. Even if you die tomorrow, you know, if you remember the end of Schindler's List, right? He says, if I just sold this watch, if I just sold this car, how many more could I have saved, right? If we look at our lives and say, you know what? If I just put, a, put to abandon this one thing, if I just lay down this one thing today, and God's not asking for you to sit there and pray 24 hours a day, maybe one day it will be that. But maybe it just means put this thing down first and pray to me first. Pick up the Bible and read it five more minutes today. Is that not a reasonable service? If God calls you to quit your job and go to Africa and eat bugs and the only way to do it is X, Y, Z, is that not a reasonable service? If God calls you to, like he has many in the past, to leave lands and homes and fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters and friends and jobs for his sake, is that not a reasonable service? For those who would die as martyrs, and I'm not saying that God necessarily means all of us to be martyred like we talked a couple weeks ago in Revelation, right? But if our body is a living sacrifice, if God calls us to the obedience of even death, and is that not a reasonable service? So as you go through these things in life, I'm not saying you have to go be a missionary, although consider it. If you haven't prayed about it, pray about it. If God, uh, if you haven't done these other things for the Lord, you haven't considered it, think I can't do it, there's no way I can do it, start to pray about it. Whatever God has put on your heart or those thoughts that come into your mind, that you just haven't dwelled on because you think there's no way, no how, you're not good enough or whatever, begin to pray about it. See what God will lead you to do to be a part of it. Some people are called to go. Some people are called to enable others to go, right? But my point is, is keep going. Do not be conformed to this world. This world wants us all to sit back and do nothing and live for the things of this world, even in the church. And I think that's, the as I close here, the biggest thing that we found... Um, out here in Montana, whether it's in the Bitterroot or in Helena, is finding that whether people verbalize it or not, and I'm, by people I mean believers in the church and elsewhere, that they want something more, that there's something absent, there's something missing, even amongst the church, even amongst a so-called good church, that there's something more. And I believe that that's God's Spirit at work, urging us, say there's more to this Christian life. It's, the end isn't going to church on Sunday. The end isn't tithing. The end is living your life as a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable service of worship. That as we worship Him in song, we worship Him in word and in fellowship and evangelism, but that our entire lives would be different. That we wouldn't be content sitting back being retired or sitting back working or whatever it is if it doesn't have a purpose for the Lord, right? If it isn't, I know that God has me here for this reason and this purpose. That may be to work a job to your last day. That may be be retired and minister to the people around the golf course. I don't know what that looks like for you and me, but I know that God has something more than even what we expect to give us more than we can ask or think or imagine and give us those desires of our hearts as we follow him, right? Living in Montana, desire of my heart. You know, I was talking with my family the past couple nights. Six, seven years ago, I was struggling to pay rent at some apartment in a crummy neighborhood in Maryland. And now look at the things that God has given us by His grace. And these are just tiny things. They're big things in a worldly sense, but they're tiny things in a spiritual sense. And man, I don't want to sit back on my laurels. If God calls me to give up all this and go somewhere else, I don't know that I would say yes immediately like the Scriptures say, but I want to be ready for that. And I know that I think each and every one of us has that desire deep down for that more, that yearning for more, yearning for more out of your Sunday service, yearning for more out of your Bible time and worship, that it wouldn't be just coming together and spending a, an hour in, in, in the Word, 
but really coming together and spending an hour with God together and leaving ready to go out and live that life of a reasonable service to God. So as God puts you through things, try and remember that. Be encouraged and strengthened in that. That man, maybe this is my reasonable service to him to go through it. And if that's the case, he died for me on the cross. So what does it matter? I'm not saying it's easy to say that or that I want to say that all the time. But I think that's what God would have us say and say, you know what, God, bring more on. <laughs> if you're going to bring more pain in my life, bring it on. Then I might know you and your sufferings and serve you more and prove what is that good and acceptable work of God. Amen? And so, God, would you bless us? Would you bless your word as you have? God, would you strengthen us for these things? God, who is sufficient for these things that your word says? But I know that you love us and have a call for each one of us. So whatever the call is on each of our lives, whatever that purpose is, may we be found faithful upon your return or on our death by your spirit. And God, all of it, God, is really that you would want us to know you more and know you deeper. And it's not about doing something for you or checking off a box or looking righteous, but doing what we know you are calling us to do and doing it to the ex more than the extent of what our flesh allows, but what your spirit enables us to do through those gifts and calling. So uh, lay your hands on each one of us, God, and give us that power and that strength by your spirit, uh, God, that we might uh, bring others to you. And God, you would be pleased with that sacrifice, God, that might be a sweet-smelling aroma to you. So God, we bless your name in Jesus' name. Amen. So may God bless you and keep you and his face shine upon you. There is a vineyard of the Lord There is a vineyard for our soul With all our troubles left behind the door We drink first light until we